Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You tell me in your own words what you were accused of and what happened to you? What I was accused of um, is orchestrating a, a sex game murder. And Amanda Knox was charged with murder of her roommate Meredith Kircher. She spent almost four years in an Italian prison for a crime she did not commit. What I was told by the police was that you've been so traumatized by having witnessed the murder of your friend that you can't even remember it. But if you don't remember it, you're never going to see your family again and we're going to put you in jail. I mean, how do you feel they've coped, people that are close to you or involved in your life or relationships that you've developed since your wrongful imprisonment and your convictions were overturned? My family and my friends, who very much stood by me, they all um, had their lives completely disrupted that ultimately inspired me to keep um, keep fighting for myself. Welcome to the Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This show centers around the question of who deserves a second chance, who has the power to grant it and what it means. Our guests come from diverse backgrounds and experiences including those who have received second chances and those who some might feel are undeserving. We'll also be looking at how a person's journey can lead them to a second chance. Amanda Knox, a journalist and public speaker, is best known for her wrongful conviction in the murder case of Meredith Kircher. Alongside her ex-boyfriend, Rafael Salicito, Knox was accused of the crime and sentenced to 26 and 25 years in prison, respectively. After four years behind bars, the Italian court acquitted them in 2011. However, 
Knox was again convicted in 2014, but was later exonerated by the Supreme Court of Italy. Despite her traumatic past, Knox has dedicated herself to advocating for criminal justice reform and media ethics. She serves on the board of the Frederick Douglass Project for Justice, where she shares her story to raise awareness about issues within the criminal justice system. Knox's bravery and activism serve as an inspiration and model for others who have experienced similar injustices. You can also listen to my interview with Amanda on my new audiobook, You Are Accused, also available on Audible. Click the link in the description or search for You Are Accused by Raphael Rowe to get your copy. Let me ask the, the very first question, and it's a very simple question, isn't it? You were once accused of a very sensational, high-profile case in Italy. You tell me in your own words, um, Amanda, what you were accused of and what happened to you. Yeah, so um, what I was accused of um, is orchestrating a sex game murder. To, to break it down to bare bones, I was accused of jealousy, of being jealous of one of my roommates who was in turn sort of depicted as this overly prudish, uh, repressed sort of a sexually, like just very sexually prude um, person, basically my exact opposite. I was depicted as one side of um, this stereotypical female spectrum of being this overly lustful, uninhibited female femme fatale type and my roommate at the time being cast as this pure virginal withdrawn kind of uh, female stereotype. And I was accused of this sort of incoherent, it was, it was incoherent because the prosecution suggested that I both orchestrated a sex game that resulted in murder, but also it was a spontaneous sort of orchestration that I brought together um, in a moment's notice, a orgy of death is essentially what I was accused of. And that then I tried to cover up this orgy of death by implicating a uh, innocent man. And that innocent man was your boyfriend, Raffaella, or Raffaello at the time? No, no. Um, the innocent man was my boss, who was um, I was supposed to be working um, the night that the murder occurred. And my boss had given me the night off at, right before you know I was due to come into work. And so when I was being interrogated, I mentioned that I was supposed to be working and then I didn't have to work. And then the police got really interested in who is this guy that I'm working for. And eventually through a series of very coercive interrogation techniques, um, I signed statements implicating my boss in the crime. When you're, when you're in a police station and you're being accused of something you know you didn't do, and I know this happened to you when you were very young, it happened to me when I was very young, and, and we can be cheeky, can't we? We can be cocky and confident in our responses because we know that something's not right. What, what was, 
And I know it's hard to ask you to go back and, and think about what it was like at the time that you were being accused. So there's one thing being accused of being involved in a murder, but it's another thing thinking about actually being accused, you know, somebody telling you you've done something that you know you hadn't done. And they probably themselves, that is the police probably knew you didn't do it because the evidence was pointing in a different direction. What was that experience like? Yeah, so there were different stages of being accused because um, at the time of my arrest, the police didn't have a lot of physical evidence available to them. Um, I was arrested five days after the crime was discovered. And so there was like they had been gathering physical evidence, but hadn't yet been able to analyze that physical evidence. So they basically were under a lot of pressure to solve the crime immediately, to arrest someone very, very quickly before they actually had any evidence to do so. And they did so by putting me and my boyfriend, who was my alibi at the time, Raffaele Solecito, through very, very intense interrogations over the course of five days, um, particularly me. And I didn't at the time realize that I was being accused because I was never actually directly accused of being involved in this crime. What I was told by the police was that eventually, over the course of all this questioning, was that I must know something that I wasn't telling them. And so they insisted that I knew something that I wasn't revealing. And eventually they told me, and the reason why you're not revealing this information is because you have amnesia. You've been so traumatized by having witnessed the murder of your friend that you can't even remember it. But if you don't remember it, you're never going to see your family again and we're going to put you in jail. So I, in the course of my interrogation, was never actually accused of being involved in the crime. I was accused of having witnessed it and being traumatized. And that was, first of all, the accusation was one of the cruelest forms of gaslighting that I'd ever experienced because already I was dealing with the trauma of, you know, my roommate was just murdered and I'm now, I don't have a place to live and I'm scared. And is somebody going to try to murder me too? Like I'm already grappling with intense trauma from having been an indirect victim of this crime, but I'm furthermore being told that I'm even more traumatized than I realize and that I need to, um, my testimony is the key that is going to bring to justice the person who murdered my friend. And it wasn't until I was arrested and imprisoned several days before I was actually told that I was being implicated as being involved in this crime. And it wasn't until the physical evidence came back that pointed to someone, not my boss and not to me and not to my boyfriend, but to a known local burglar, that the police changed their whole tact. And instead of making me a sort of side figure in how the crime occurred, they made me the central figure in how the crime happened. So the evolution of how I was accused and gaslit evolved over the course of how the evidence came out. And I suppose one of the, 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 the sort of memorable things about your case, and for anyone who doesn't know, it was a high profile case, I'm sure people are familiar with your name, is the way that they the salaciously 
depicted you as an individual. So it wasn't just, as you say, about the evidence. Now, even though there was new forensic evidence that pointed away from you and others being guilty and that they had somebody in the frame, it was how they depicted you using terms and images. And, and the one image that sticks in my head, and I'm sure it does, is the moment you're stood outside, I think, the apartment um, after the, the crime has been discovered where you're being comforted by your boyfriend or you're comforting your, your former boyfriend. And that was depicted in a sensational way as if you were callous or carefree. Uh, what, what was that like? What was it like to be you are accused by the media, um, by the police and the authorities, but you're also being accused by the media of being this cold, calculated young woman. What was that like? And what's the truth of it? Yeah, sure. I mean, what ultimately happened with all of this is the, the truth is that my friend Meredith was sexually assaulted and murdered in her own home. And it was such a shocking and vicious Thing that happened to her when she was doing everything, quote, right, that a young woman who's vulnerable can do. She was not, you know, attacked on a side street. Um, she was not attacked when she was inhib like mentally inhibited in any way. She was at home. She was getting ready for bed. She was, you know, getting ready to go study again in the morning. Like that kind of thing was going on. She was doing everything right. And yet someone broke into our home, sexually assaulted her and murdered her. And it's such an atrocious crime. And suddenly now they've arrested another young woman in relation to this crime. And so they had to craft a story that would make sense for how a another young woman could be implicated in the sexual assault and violent murder of another young mo woman. And the fact of the matter is these kinds of things are so incredibly rare. They almost never happen. Young women don't sexually assault and murder other young women. Um, and so they had to craft a character of, of me that would be the kind of young person who it could the kind of young woman who could be involved in the sexual assault and violent murder of another young woman. And so they created this insane caricature of a person who was a femme fatale with violent fantasies and drug and drug induced and, and all of that. And it so blatantly was something that was being crafted after the sort of guilty person was already arrived at in the minds of the investigators. They had a person, and so they had to force that person into a narrative that then could make some kind of logical sense. And I can't tell you the number of ways that my behavior after the fact, after I was arrested, was reframed and redepicted in order to achieve that result of depicting me as the kind of person who would do this. So that three second clip is a great example of that, where outside of the crime scene, in the immediacy of the crime being discovered, I'm standing there shocked, just utterly shocked, also confused because everyone's screaming in Italian and I don't speak Italian that well. And my boyfriend is standing there next to me. I'm cold. He's holding me. And he looks into my eyes and gives me a peck on the lips to sort of comfort me. But of course, the way that that was then drawn out in the media, that three seconds of my life was put on loop and put in slow motion and put on repeat so that it looked as if 
I was just making out with my boyfriend outside of a crime scene when in fact he kissed me once and was there just basically holding me while I was cold and scared outside of a crime scene. And that the way that we can reframe purposefully people's um, reactions in, in real time is insane to me. The fact that like all of my sort of innocent behavior, the fact that I didn't flee the country, like the person who actually committed this crime, the fact that I willingly submitted myself to questioning, the fact that I did cry, the fact that I hugged all of my friends and we were all trying to work out how do we support Meredith's family when they arrived. All of these other behaviors of mine were completely erased in the narrative of this case and completely overlooked even by investigators who, after I was arrested, decided to remember my behavior in a way that would justify their beliefs about me and justify their actions towards me. And I find that this happens in a lot of wrongful convictions cases where after the fact, after the person has been wrongly accused, after they've served time in prison for something they didn't do, police and prosecutors will say, well, we had no other choice but to suspect them because look at their behavior. And it's like, well, but did you overlook their innocent behavior? Did you overlook exonerating evidence? Were you with a single mind to view them as guilty, even though they were innocent? Whose fault is that? Who actually has the agency in controlling the narrative? I certainly didn't. They did. Um, so I think that's a long-winded way to respond to what is this what is this character that was created out of me? Well, it was not of my making. It was it was molded and shaped and it was a distortion that was crafted to justify the actions of those who had power over the situation. And and it's an interesting answer because it then begs the next question, how do you as an individual change that narrative that image once you've been depicted in that way and it's been used for the purpose that the authorities used it for how difficult has it been for you over the years to unpick that that image because i'm asking you a question about it even now all these years on how how difficult has it been amanda to to sort of reframe what happened in the same way you've just explained to me or is it not impossible I would say that um, it's not impossible, but also like overturning wrongful convictions, there's no guarantee that ultimately you're going to be able to reclaim your own narrative and your own identity. When you've been falsely accused of something, your identity has been stolen from you. Your story, your life story has been stolen from you. Your reality has been stolen from you and reclaiming it is basically you against a world of people who have not been accused of something horrible, right? Like you're one single person who's been accused of something horrible. No one ever heard of you prior to this. You're an anonymous person who suddenly comes into the world's awareness attached to a horrific crime. And you're up against a, a chorus of hundreds of voices in my case of people who are considered authority figures who can be trusted and who claim that I am this horrible person. And for me, for the longest time, I felt like I felt like I was doomed to be the victim of people's ideas about me. I, I was worried that I would, even if I was eventually freed and vindicated in a court of law, I would never, ever, ever be free from 
the shackles of public opinion and that there would be a version of me in the world and people's minds that I would constantly be butting up against because I couldn't think of anyone in the world who would ever be close to me, who would not be impacted by that version of me in people's minds. And for the longest time, that was true. Like it's been how long since I was released from prison? It's been almost 11 years. So it's been 10 years since I was released from prison and it's been seven years, almost seven years since I was fully acquitted. And to this day, there is a version of me out there in the world that is foxy, noxy, false depiction of me. And I grapple with that as I attempt to reclaim my own life and, and imagine that my own voice and my own sort of depiction of myself could be a representative, could be defining to me. And I have found that a lot of times the reality is not what matters to people. It's the story. And people want a piece of that story because it sold for whatever reason, newspapers. It's a way to get attention by latching on to the story and giving your own spin on it and using me as a stepping stone, basically as an easy sort of reference point for which to gain attention points. And it's taken me a long time and it's taken me a lot of um, support from people who love me who say, actually, Amanda, what you have to say about your experience matters. And it shouldn't just matter to you. It actually might matter to other people. First of all, it's taken a lot of processing on my part of being able to have some interesting or valuable perspective that doesn't just automatically happen. Like it's taken a lot of um, intellectual and emotional processing in order to understand what happened to me, why it happened to me, how it happens to other people um, and how an awareness of that might actually be of comfort or help to others. And then having people reach out to me wanting to find support from me that they don't feel like they can find in the rest of the world because the rest of the world doesn't really understand, hasn't like fully grappled with what it means to have your identity stolen from you and redefined by strangers who have their own agendas. So again, like it's taken a long time and I can't say that I feel victorious, um, but I am, I am sort of having to reteach myself that my voice matters and my perspective matters because when you're in a prison cell proclaiming your innocence and no one's listening, it feels like you learn that your perspective and, and who you are as a person doesn't matter. Your reality doesn't matter. And you have to unlearn that part of your victimization in order to reclaim your life. Reclaiming your life started, well, there were a few hiccups along the way, wasn't there? Because I think you had one appeal, your conviction was overturned, you were freed, and then you had another appeal, you were reconvicted, and then eventually the Supreme Court, if, if I'm sort of giving this chronologically right, the Supreme Court then declared your innocence in itself. And is that, uh, have I got that right? And if I have, is that when you reclaimed your your voice? And I know you say it took many years after that for you to become the Amanda you deserve to be from when you were young. But just chronologically explain to me how you were eventually cleared and able to move forward. Sure. Um, so 
while I was on trial and um, during my first acquittal, those first four years I was in prison, I was essentially helpless and voiceless. And I very much relied upon my loved ones and my lawyers to make the case for my innocence for me um, because I was in prison and, and was not, unable to share my voice and my perspective with the world. Then there was this limbo period um, between 2011 and 2015 when I was, I remained on trial. My acquittal was overturned. I was reconvicted in absentia and I, my case was taken to the equivalent of the Italian Supreme Court where my second conviction was overturned and I was definitively acquitted non aver commesso il fatto, for not having committed the crime. So I was declared factually innocent. And I remember that moment very well because in that limbo space period where I was still grappling with the accusation and, and the legal complications that arose from it, I still felt like I didn't have ownership over my own life and my own innocence and my own reality. I didn't feel like I could plant roots and work towards a life in any meaningful way because it could all be stolen from me again very, very easily and very quickly. And in fact, as I was you know, going to school, I was also talking to lawyers about what it would mean to turn myself in in the United States in the hopes that maybe I could serve a sentence here instead of in Italy. Like these are the kinds of things that I'm grappling with as a mid 20 year old. While the rest of the, you know, the 20 year olds I know are out at bars and meeting people and on Tinder and like that, it was not my experience. I was incredibly isolated. I was incredibly adrift, um, but I was also just sort of huddled at home trying to feel safe in a very unsafe and hostile world. And always, always, always under the spotlight of tabloids who would show up outside of my house, you know, randomly and try to take photos of me and, you know, try to portray me in whatever scandalous light that they could so they could continue to get money off of slandering me and defaming me. So at that period of my life, I felt also very helpless, even if I was sort of trying to add my voice to the conversation, I still felt like my voice had a little asterisk by it. Like, by the way, she's still accused of a horrific crime. So take what she has to say with a grain of salt, but don't take what this journalist who hasn't done his homework um, with a grain of salt because he doesn't have a murder attached to him. And it wasn't until after I was fully acquitted, uh, fully exonerated, um, that I began to think instead of reactively, proactively. And I, I tried to, I had the, even the opportunity to imagine a life that moved forward from this horrible accusation. While I was in the midst of it, I couldn't think of anything. I couldn't think of a life outside of that accusation because I was always, always, always having to react to it. With again, a lot of support from loved ones who believed in me and who felt like I had something to offer the world other than just hiding and, and hoping that you know, eventually the accusation would disappear. I started trying to talk about what it feels like to be accused and vilified, just out of the blue, undeserved um, with other people. I started out talking about women and who had either been accused of crimes or who had been accused of being sluts, whatever it was in the in the media. 
and talking about what it felt like and talking about what it meant and where these accusations were coming from. And is there a prevailing ideology that's pushing these narratives forward and, and bringing them to the forefront of our attention? And are they not based in reality? Why are these narratives existing? Why do we want to talk about women who commit heinous crimes? And why are we not talking about violence against women, which is what happened in this case? My friend was raped and murdered. That's not the interesting story. The interesting story is, can we imagine a woman who's a rapist and a murderer? That's how the story was completely went off the rails. And I've been, again, sort of processing my own experience and trying to understand why, while also looking into other people's stories as, a, as an avenue of like trying to see this issue from all angles. And, you know, that's led me to the place where I am today, where I'm a journalist and I'm a podcaster and um, and I do a lot of work to support the innocence movement, um, but also just in general to talk about how real people's lives and traumas are exploited for either ideological or entertainment reasons. And we're all sort of implicated for that happening because we're all consumers of these stories. I'm interrupting this midpoint to let you know this podcast is also available for viewing on our YouTube channel at Second Chance Podcast. So if you want to enhance your listening experience with the visuals, check it out. I also wanted to ask for your support to help me grow the podcast. All you have to do is click on the subscribe and like button wherever you listen to the Second Chance Podcast. If you can spare another few minutes to comment and rate the show, that'd be brilliant. By doing so, you'll be assisting us in bringing in more guests and creating more content for the show. It only takes a second, but it makes all the difference. Thank you. I I often wonder whether we, people like you and I and others who have been through a similar experience, not necessarily just a wrongful conviction, we become trapped in our own experiences, hence we go on to become the kind of journalists that we are, where we're trying to expose other people's um, wrongful convictions or what it's like to be wrongly accused or people that are suffering in some way, shape or form, because I'm sure you and I, before we went through our experiences, were not going down that particular path in, in our life. Do you feel trapped in the work that you do because there is... I don't know, I hesitate to say there's nothing else, but because it consumes such an important part of your life at such a young age as it did mine, that we're trapped in the need to do something to change that narrative? So in a way, yes, I think that um, you and I both um, have a special kind of feeling trapped because it's it's a very literal entrapment. (laughs) We've been trapped Um, physically and emotionally and psychologically in another person's incredibly false self-serving narrative. And so that feeling of trapped is uh, being trapped is very, very real. Like there, there, if we're, if we're all claustrophobic after the, after this experience, like there is a very real thing that happened, like our freedom being stolen from us um, that justifies that. The one thing that I will say though, is that there's the way of looking at it, which is that you're trapped in your own life, or there's the way of looking at it, which is that we are all, every human being on this planet trapped in our own life. And the only thing that we can do in a world where we have no control over the external circumstances of things that happen to us, whether that be 
imprisonment, false imprisonment or poverty or mental illness or physical illness. Like all of these things happen to people in undeservedly <laughs> and you just have to make the most of whatever life throws at you. And so one way of looking at it is that you're trapped and you're constantly having to be in conversation with an aspect of your life that you didn't choose, or you just look at it like, well, here's an opportunity for me to process something and to have a sense of ownership over something that I didn't ask for. And that's all you can do in life, really. And I think that provides us with probably the most powerful voices. But what about those you've mentioned on a few occasions, how supportive those that loved you, care about you, no doubt relatives, parents, uh, siblings, uh, and friends that did stick by you, if any did, not many do, but those that did. I mean, how do you feel they've coped from, from your observations or conversations, people that are close to you or involved in your life or relationships that you've developed since your wrongful imprisonment and your convictions were overturned? How do you think they deal with the idea that, that you've had to live with this, this stigma if it's still there all this time? Yeah, um, I'm glad you asked that question because that's not a question that tends to get asked very often. Um, and it's an aspect of the wrongful conviction experience that very often gets overlooked. And the idea is that there's this ground zero of the person who's accused and all of the focus is on that person. And it's not shown how like a single accusation can explode, not just one person's life, but a whole network of people's lives. I mean, what I can say is that my family and my friends who very much stood by me and very much like forced me to remember that like I mattered in a world that was telling me that I didn't matter. They reminded me um, that I mattered. They all um, had their lives completely disrupted by what happened to me because it took like restructuring their lives in order to help me be free and to help me rebuild. And it took them recognizing my strengths in my moment of weakness to rebuild. Like I was incredibly vulnerable and weakened by what had happened to me. And it was them recognizing my strengths and reminding me of my perspective and all that I had to offer that ultimately inspired me to keep fighting for myself. And they have all coped in different ways. Not everyone has um, coped well. I know that um, over the years, the anxiety medication has maybe um, gone down, but like my mom's still in counseling from everything that happened. And, and we're all still like grappling with the, like my sisters are still grappling with the reality of all of our lives being consumed with save Amanda, save Amanda, save Amanda, while they're just trying to like develop as human beings in the world. It's been something that we've, we still have to unravel all of the traumatic implications, um, particularly in a world that doesn't usually recognize the indirect trauma of wrongful accusations. And, you know, I'm thinking about that with my daughter, right? Like, my husband deals with it. He was not a part of my life while the, all of this was happening. And yet, you know, he still gets knives photoshopped into photos of him and people calling him like a freak who must like love, you know, knife play during sex because that's the only thing that they can imagine him wanting anything to do with me. And 
wondering, you know, what is my, is my daughter going to feel like she's living in the shadow of my wrongful accusation? Is she going to be the murder daughter? You know, like what, what is that going to feel like for her? One of the ways that I'm trying to, to deal with this problem is by normalizing it by making it seem like she's not alone in this experience and instead putting her in contact with a lot of other families who have gone through this traumatic event. I'm, I'm really, really connected with a lot of other exonerees here in the United States and a lot of those family members um, who have supported their person through thick and thin. And I don't want her to feel like her whole world is being my daughter. I want her to feel like she's her whole person, but I want to give her the option to explore this reality on her own terms and to find common ground with people who she wouldn't expect to find common ground with because it's, you, you know, wrongfully convicted people and their families are not exactly just hanging out in an apartment building together like the friends in New York, you know, like we have to find each other. And, um, but gratefully there's a whole network of people that puts us in contact. And I hope that she'll, find her place and her way of like allowing my wrongful conviction to also be a part of her awareness, but not necessarily a part of her identity if she doesn't want it to be. I mean, it's such a challenge, isn't it? As I said earlier, you know, there, there, there came a point, I didn't think about it when my kids were first born, when they were so young, you don't think about telling them because they couldn't comprehend it anyway. But also, you want to protect them from hearing it from someone else, you want to be the first one to explain to them so they hear it from mummy or from daddy. Do you ha and it, it sounds awkward, a question, because your daughter's so young, I think she's less than 12 months old, seven or eight months old, she's so young, so you haven't got to contemplate having to tell her at this age. But it sounds to me that you've given it some deep thought already. Do you have, I wouldn't like to say a plan of when you might need to feel the need to tell your daughter, obviously it depends how she develops and when you think she's mature enough to take on that information. Um, as I said to you, I, I kind of found newspaper cuttings one way of showing that. I, I felt there was a need to sort of say, look, if you see this first, you see that I'm innocent, then I can explain to you what happened. I don't know. That was one way of doing it. With my daughter, it was kind of more of a tearful kind of emotional thing. I've been to prison. You've been to prison, Daddy? Yeah, kind of thing. It was a really difficult conversation. How do you control that narrative with your daughter? Not the external noise. I'm not talking about the media and them trying to influence it, but you, Amanda, and your husband, making sure that you protect your daughter until the point comes where you tell her. Yeah, so I think it goes back again to, first of all, normalizing it. So it's not this like traumatic, shameful thing that we're hiding away from. And gratefully, I'm at a stage in my life where I'm able to address um, the issue of like prison and wrongful accusation in a, in a sort of proactive, positive way, if you can think about it, like I'm doing a lot of research into prison reform and criminal justice reform. And so I'm looking at like solutions to problems instead of just like grappling with the problems. I'm not in a sort of crisis place that would project anxiety and crises onto her. I'm in a more stable, reflective space. And then what I'm just going to do is like, she's going to notice that I talk about prison sometimes with people on the internet. And she's going to notice that we go every year to a conference where I meet a lot of people who have been to prison. And one day she's going to say, hey, mom, why are we doing that? And when she says that, 
I'll answer her question honestly and truthfully. And I'm going to allow her to be the leader in her own discovery of this reality. And I'm not going to hide it from her. That's so important. Amanda, the, the headlines and all the newspapers and, and all the stories that have gone on over the years have depicted you in a certain way. You've kind of taken control of that narrative. I want to know who and how you see yourself. Who, who is Amanda Knox today? I know that you're a mother. I know that you're a wife. I know that you've taken control of your own narrative. But what do people need to know? Who, who, who are you? Uh, you? You know, beyond that, I, I'm, it, one of the reasons I've not gone into the details of your case is because only you know the truth and the police know the truth. The guilty person knows the truth. You, you were exonerated. You were cleared. You were innocent. And it doesn't matter how many rooftops you shout from. There will always be the doubters. There will always be the supporters. But that doesn't matter because the important thing is you're there now getting on with your life. But who are you, Amanda? I know you're a reformer. I know you're interested in sort of fighting other wrongful convictions and being involved in that space, understanding that space. How would you describe yourself? I mean, at its most simple, I would say, like, if I had to, like, just say, what am I in one single thing, I would say I'm a bridge builder. I'm someone who grew up in a world where wrongful convictions didn't happen. I didn't know anything about wrongful convictions. It was the farthest thing from my mind. I never thought about the criminal justice system. I never felt like I needed to, because I grew up in a world where it was utterly oversimplified. Bad people went to jail and good people didn't. And I feel like a lot of people in the world are still very much like me, where they think it's a lot simpler than it truly is. And where the world is very black and white. And I was thrust into a situation that I didn't even know existed. And now I feel like one of my greatest strengths is that I can build a bridge between those who never thought they'd ever have to think about the criminal justice system and those who inevitably always have to think about the criminal justice system because of the whatever circumstances that they were brought up in. People who um, find themselves more often the victims of these cases um, and where that discussion, that awareness of these problems is more present, but also where the resources for battling these problems are more scarce. And I think that translating, it's funny, like I'm either a bridge builder or a translator. These are the words that keep coming back to me because again, it's like, it's an experience that people never thought that they could understand or appreciate. And I'm trying to say, no, you can. And here's the language for it. And here's the reality of it. And it's something that we can all appreciate and, uh, and get close to, even if it feels like it's so, such a thing that shouldn't even be in our awareness and they, that we all are implicated in, honestly, because like, you know, judicial outcomes are absolutely affected by public opinion and we are all a part of public opinion. That is what I feel like my role is because I do think that as a young woman who had no criminal behavioral problems, who had everything going for her, who had no reason to commit a heinous crime, for me, of all people, to be accused of a heinous sex crime just goes to show like how far people will go to not admit they were wrong. And that is an incredibly dangerous impulse for authority figures who have, who have the right over life and death situations and in freedom to not grapple with. Um, so 
that's what I feel like I am. I'm a translator and a bridge builder. And yeah. Do, do you live in a world where, I mean, people often ask that question, don't they? Are you still bitter and twisted or are you still angry about what happened to you? The truth of the matter is, yes, I'm still angry about what happened. Um, if I'm being completely honest, I am absolutely angry. But anger is not the strongest emotion. It's not the most important emotion. Um, it is an emotion that gives me information, however. I think a lot of people don't want to acknowledge their anger because they feel like if they um, acknowledge it, that means that that's the most important part of them or that that means that they're a bitter person. And it's like, no, it's, it's okay to be angry when you've been hurt. It is. That's a part of it. That's a part of processing what happened to you. It's not the only part. And I have allowing having compassion for myself and the anger that I feel and the sadness I feel has allowed me to have compassion for the people who hurt me because I can imagine their anger and their sadness at having to grapple with the fact that they hurt an innocent person and I can understand better why they would resist admitting that to themselves and others so I think that like for me it's okay to be angry that you were hurt. That's just a part of it. And it doesn't make you a lesser person. In fact, acknowledging your anger and living with it in, and still not feeling like you are having to react to the world out of anger while still like acknowledging your anger makes you a more stable and healthy person. Um, so I do, a, a, I do, a, I don't want to act like I'm someone who lives without anger. I'm not. I'm not going to act like there are certain things that I see in the world or ways people act towards me when I feel like I'm being lied to by authority figures, even in, you know, little situations that like triggers a spark of anger in me because I know what it's like the, the implications of a, an authority figure y lying to me, how that impacted my life in the past. Like that's a trigger for me and it makes me angry, but I recognize the anger and I know how to like, not feel consumed by it. So anger is information. It's not an overwhelming, it's, it's not the thing that guides my life, but it is true. Uh, and my last question before I, we end this is, do, do you stand there today and accuse anybody? I mean, I know that the police and the, the, the bad investigation and all the stuff that goes on in, in these sorts of cases are bad. But do you accuse anybody today yourself, Amanda? I mean, I suppose depends on what it means to accuse someone. I absolutely think that the, the police and the investigators and the prosecutors in my case have not accepted accountability for their actions. And if that means that I'm accusing them of wrongdoing that they don't want to acknowledge, then I guess, yes, I am accusing someone. I think the difference here is I don't want to accuse them of or like of knowing what their intentions were or where their heart was at when they committed a wrong against me. I don't think that I am assuming anything about what kind of person that makes them. I just want the truth to be acknowledged by them. And the truth can simply be that they meant well 
and they made a mistake. That could be the truth. And that could, that they could, that could really, really be true. The fact that that hasn't happened is a, is a little bit where my anger comes from, where there is this constant resistance to self-introspection and accountability, even if it comes at like no cost, ultimately, I'm not suing anybody right now. Like I'm not demanding anything from anybody, but I, and I guess maybe the other thing that I am accusing someone of potentially is the man who actually committed this crime has never, ever, ever said what really happened. He's always pointed the finger at me and he has not held himself accountable for his crimes and for the harm that he continues perpetrating against me and my co-defendant, Raffaele. So in that way, it's an ongoing harm that I'm grappling with. And that's and I the can hear that's a perfect that time to stop this because I can hear your little girl demanding your attention, Amanda, <laughs> and I don't want to keep you away from them <laughs> and cuddles and the need to, to give her attention. Thank you so much for sharing those insights with me. Um, I will keep you posted. Um, let's keep in touch in some way, shape or form. I'd love to have you on my podcast at some point to, to talk about second chances. So I'll, I'll drop you an email about that. Before I go, is there anything you want to say that I've not asked you? Not that I can think of. Just sorry, I'm so rambly. <laughs> you're, you're not at all. It's, I didn't expect to interview you now and to record it. So I appreciate you giving up 45 minutes of your time, even though we didn't agree to that right now. And we could have done it another time. But I do appreciate it. I'll let you get on with your daughter. But let's keep in touch and I will keep you posted. Okay, great. Sounds good. Brilliant, Amanda. Nice to meet you and great talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, of course. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Second Chance podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. Quick reminder that you can find the video of this interview on our YouTube channel at Second Chance Podcast, where you can also subscribe to be notified of new episodes. Please share our episodes with your friends, family and colleagues and follow us on YouTube and your preferred podcast platform for updates on new episodes. Your feedback is crucial to the growth of our podcast, so please rate and review our episodes and let us know your thoughts in the comments section. This podcast was brought to you by Second Chance Media Productions. Audio Avalanche handles audio editing. J-Row Productions created the original soundtrack. Studio Minerva designed the eye-catching cover. Social media marketing agency Scribble manages and creates our social media content. If you haven't already, please follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook and LinkedIn. Just look for Second Chance Podcast with me, Raphael Rowe. Thanks for tuning in.